Hello and welcome to the Ramen Profitable Podcast. My name is Atish Mazumdar and I'm here with my co-pilot, the great and powerful Chris Scott. And this is the podcast about testing out your ideas, taking your first steps, and really overcoming those obstacles on the way to entrepreneurship. Enjoy. Boom. Okay. Are we wearing like basically the same shirt? Uh, Mine's not white. Mine's like a really light, like blue like greenish blue. Oh, okay. Grayish even. Yeah. Yeah. See, mine's not white either. It's gray, but I don't know if it has any tints of any other colors because of course that's my, uh, my kryptonite. Are you wearing gray pants? I'm not. Are you? I am. So are you crazy? You're wearing gray pants with a gray shirt. It was a crazy morning, dude. It was a crazy morning. (laughs) That's like, um, it it reminds me of that episode of Seinfeld where, uh, Elaine starts dating a communist. Okay, yeah. And and they were like, uh, because she's she's not sure, so I forget who says it. it might be George or Jerry, but he's like, does he wear a lot of drab gray clothing? <laughs> <laughs> That's you. You're a card-carrying communist today. I'm a commie. No, I'm not. For the record, I'm not a communist. Are these your uh, sound isolation booths behind you? Yep. They've been slightly modified. I've shortened them. Okay. I've uh, made a, a, a roof on them. I don't know if you can see the roof. Mm-hmm. I can see like a little and, bit. Oh. Yeah. And it's got a lot of padding on the outside as well on the inside. See, this just adds to the like product line, if you will. Remember when we were batting around the idea of uh, like podcast in a bag? Yep. But it's like you could sell then like a subscription. Like your podcast, like you're the you're the whole experience. You've got the studio in there, too. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're a mobile podcasting unit. (laughs) Everyone's really impressed when they come in to use it. (laughs) It's not creepy at all. No, just like sitting in that in that booth. (laughs) Just sitting in the booth. I got to I got to do some uh, finishing touches on it just to get the smooth out the edges, get the uh, the homemade look out of it. Mm hmm. And I think it'll be good to go. Dude, I, I think it's great. Like, honestly, I kind of wish in a in a general sort of sense, and I should start with stuff, but I just like easy stuff, but I never do. But it's like I want to be more handy. You know what I okay. mean? Like just just in a general sense, but more specifically, I want to have the bias towards just building something myself as opposed to uh you know, like, like having someone else do it <laughs> um, because even just with like little things like or not little things, but, you know, for instance, um, <clears throat> immediately when uh, when quarantine or the first lockdown started, I went out uh-huh. to Home Depot and bought these like steel pipes with like uh, T joints and uh, L joints and basically made my own pull-up bar rig that, like, I'm pretty sure it's bomb-proof because, you know, I've tried yanking it just to make sure it could hold my weight, and it doesn't move at all. So I'm pretty sure you could drop a bomb on this house, and it'll it'll still be there. Um, but I always rely on on my guy. I've got I've got a guy. Uh, well, Colton, he's my guy. Uh huh. Uh huh. But but it's like because he's got all the stuff. He's go, he's like, oh yeah, no, we need some masonry screws. I've got some of those, and like so he just knows what he's doing. So I always just default to you know him helping me out. But it's like, you know, I kind of want to learn. Or I want to bias towards you know. So you needed a place where people could isolate their sound and like record a podcast together. So you built a little you know little, little house. foam booth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's the hard part about being a handy is you have to have the tools. Mm-hmm. And that just gets expensive really fast. Yeah. Yeah. But the best way to do it, as uh, my buddy was telling me, he was like, don't try and do anything now. He's like, wait until Christmas. And around Christmas time, uh, Ace Hardware and Home Depot just go on these crazy sales and just buy everything at that time. That makes sense. Yeah. So I'm, you know, obviously in the lurch until <laughs> December. <laughs> but I, uh, I got these. Uh, I guess they're toolboxes, but they're big and they can stack. There's like a there's like a normal size toolbox, and then there's like a really thin one, and then there's uh, one that's slightly thicker, mm-hmm. and then one's even bigger with wheels on it. So you can stack them, link them together, and roll them around if you want. Mm. And I get those. You get those around Father's Day. That's probably another time to go. Oh, tool yeah, shopping. Father's, Father's Day. Day. Yeah. 
but but I have a nice little case just for my audio gear, a case for my lighting gear, a case for grip stuff, and it just stacks up. Roll it all Roll out. It out. Well, well, there yep. you go, uh, listeners. Don't ever say that ramen profitable never gave you anything. Here's a here's a news flash from the city. <laughs> uh, wait until Father's Day and buy tools <laughs> <laughs> and toolboxes and toolboxes. No, that's that's sharp. When when is Father's Day? June. Oof, that's a long time. Oh, I, can, I can wait till yeah. then. Basically, this house that I live in currently is like falling apart. And and I rent, by the way. I should make that make that clear to everyone. I don't. I could maybe buy a house, but like I haven't grown up enough to know anything about buying a house and interest rates. What's well, the decision? Where are you going to set your roots? I think you're di- str- struggling with the root part. Yeah, it, right? I, exactly. I'm, I'm struggling with the root part because, to be honest, I don't want to set my roots in Phoenix, even though everyone's like, oh, well, this is the housing market to buy in because these properties are going to be high. Like all tech companies are moving here. So it's highly commoditized and stuff. It's like, I don't really care about that. Although maybe I should. I don't know. Maybe you should. Yeah. I don't know. It does seem like there's like a bubble that's going to happen. That's going to burst. Yeah. Yeah. So if the bubble bursts, is everything going to get more expensive or is everything going to get less expensive? I mean, it really kind of depends because here's the other kind of global concern. Um, and and mind you, anybody, everybody listening should take this with a humongous grain of salt because, like, I'm just some guy. I don't know what I'm talking about. OK, like, I just want to disclaimer this right from the get go. But it seems like because uh, I, I, I listened to um, some Freakonomics. Are you, are you familiar? OK. I've heard, yes, I, I am familiar with Freakonomics. Okay. So I was listening to this piece about how basically this idea of the middle class is dissolving and we're breaking down into like the the gap between being in the lower class and being in the upper class is basically just widening out. And so it becomes almost insurpa- insurmountable to get over to the other side as this gap starts to widen out. So really what my main concern right now is making sure that I'm, on the other side, like I'm just trying to increase my income and decrease my expenditures so so I can like navigate myself to the other side. But I don't know if that's actually something to be worried about or not. It's probably just proper uh, living common sense. Common sense. Yeah. Living inside your means. And it just makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So so there's that as well. It's like uh, and, and that's something, you know, because I, I just came back from. Hawaii and I was just spending like a oh time. yeah you don't stop talking about it please <laughs> you know I should have opened up with aloha I think I'm gonna start <laughs> start oh every gosh. podcast by saying aloha <laughs> please don't um but yeah I was just like I was telling Tori that I was uh spending money like a teenage era about there <laughs> so now I need to come home and like really bring it down a notch cool. get back to yep get back to the normal living but back to mayonnaise sandwiches oh god yeah yeah, but, uh, but but those are kind of the things that I'm just, you know, struggling with the concept of like buying a house or the con- and, and to be fair, I mean, there's this guy I know I, I talk about him all the time on the podcast. His name is Ramit Sethi. Uh, he wrote this book called I Will Teach You to Be Rich, uh, which is like, admittedly, it's a it's a attention grabby title. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a little bit of it's kind of like four hour work week in that sense. You know what I mean? That that the title yeah. evokes something that you're like, oh, yeah, like this will be uh, uh, what do they call that? A. Um, uh, quick, uh, get rich quick scheme. Yeah, it's like, okay. you know, those things, those all evoke those kind of get rich quick schemey type feelings, you know, four hour work week. It sounds too good to be true. Same with I will teach you to be rich. It's like, oh, great. All I have to do is read the book. But basically what he says is that, you know, it's it's all about making sure you're providing for your rich life, but you're not putting the constraints of other people's uh, choices or other people's uh, ideas of what a rich life is in front of your own. So, for instance, what he says is like, I don't own a house. He's like, I live in Manhattan. It would be ridiculous for me to own anything here because he uh, he was like I, in the book, he says, I just had my roof replaced last year in my Manhattan, you know, penthouse apartment. And I didn't have to pay for any of it. So he's like paying for rent or paying for a mortgage in Manhattan would just be ridiculous. So instead I just stay renting. So 
in that regard, I think it's important to just focus on the stuff that actually serves you. So don't let yourself fall into these traps of like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, this many years old, I should probably buy a house. You know, it's like only, only if it makes sense financially for you to do so. And only if uh, that kind of like asset appreciation is, is what you want out of life. And that's not what you want. I mean, it's not what I want. You just want, you just want a sturdy pull-up bar. <laughs> yeah, I want, a, I want a sturdy pull-up bar. And honestly, I want one of those, uh, I want a podcasting booth. You need one. Because maybe. get you some panels or something. Yeah, yeah. I want to do that. But it's like, maybe I can make a podcasting slash sauna booth. Oh, dang. That sounds sticky. Yeah. And like those two things don't. Uh, mesh well together. together like electronics shouldn't be in a a steamy room yeah actually i should know that because these very the very thing that got me to buy well the yeti i got for podcasting purposes but i used to just use these headphones for my zoom calls like at work and stuff because it has a mic built in but then i took these into the sauna and like obviously that's a dumb idea yeah <laughs> so now the mic doesn't work anymore <laughs> yeah dude yeah that's how that's how moisture works with electronics yeah so let that be a lesson to you all don't bring your electronics in the sauna and it's like man it's a wonder that my phone still works as good as it does because it's like i definitely brought that in the sauna too because what do you think these headphones were connected to (laughs) we have all the good advice today yeah yeah this is all this is a very practical and pragmatic uh episode of ramen profitable where we're gonna let you know about all the things that you shouldn't take into the sauna no, but earlier, <laughs> uh, earlier this week, uh, Chris, you you uh, texted me um, a little a little screen image about uh, social proof, or maybe I was calling it social proof. What does it say on the thing? Uh, I was calling it social validation. Validation. Okay, but but it lists social proof here. So, um, but I think you call it social proof because you brought it up before when. When you first started dating, Tori, I think, is the story you always tell. Yeah, well. And how all the other women wanted to date you because ah, you were okay. dateable. So um, that's I'm actually glad you brought that up because I was going to say, do you know how I first learned about social proof? I've heard the story lots of times, but I'm just. <laughs> but I'm going to tell it anyways. Um, tell it again. Are you familiar with the book The Game? Uh, yes, I'm familiar with the book. The game. <laughs> so this it's guy, a terrible book. Yeah, it's like actually there's a book, you know, because four hour work week we picked apart and kind of thought about how, you know, it's it's a little bit dated. It's like the game is a book that is super dated. Like if anyone picked it up today and tried to put into practice the stuff that's in it, it's like it's just the most ridiculous thing you it does not work basically. And to be fair, I don't know if it ever worked. I think it does in fringe cases. Okay. So to stop burying the lead, um, the game was a book by this guy, uh, this author, Neil Strauss. And, uh, he was a, uh, reporter or like a, a journalist, I should say for, uh, Rolling Stone. So oftentimes he'd be going on tour with these major bands, including like, uh, Motley Crue and stuff like that. Like all these like rock and roll bands right and he would have backstage passes and all that kind of stuff but at the same time he's just this nerdy kind of guy he's this nerdy writer guy who still gets uncomfortable with girls and all that kind of stuff so despite being a rock and roll journalist who has backstage passes to motley Crue and stuff like that he still wasn't hitting it off with women like he he still just wasn't doing well so he starts looking up um pickup artists which I guess at the time must have been a thing, because if you look at like early 2000s, I think there was a reality show of one of there them. There was a reality show. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Yeah. And, and those had to have been coming out at the same time as like, like they were all the same format, you know, like Rock of Love and stuff like that. Like they're, they're all kind of these game show, dating show, reality TV type stuff. Um, I think it came out around the same time. It was the early 2000s. There was a lot of affliction gear, a yeah. lot of weird scarves and <laughs> and like weird threading on jeans. And yeah, it was a bad time. Ed, it was Hardy, a bad time. Ed Hardy was big. Ed Hardy was a thing. Yeah, they sold 
those sleeves that you can put on so you look like you had Ed Hardy tattoos. Oh my god, dude, just brutal, just brutal. Yeah, it, looks it was terrible. it was a bad time. It was, it a, was bad a bad time. time. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Von Dutch trucker hats. Yeah, if you're if you remember that, uh, yeah. So yeah, it was, it was everybody a weird was time. getting punked. Oh yeah, people were getting punked. Yeah, people were yeah. getting punked back then. Um, yeah, so, uh, so the journalist um, Neil Strauss ends up linking up with this pickup artist named Mystery, or at least that's his moniker. That's what he goes by, and uh, he learns the ways of like attracting and picking up women, which includes all kinds of ridiculous things like. Um, wearing something particularly ridiculous like a purple fuzzy hat or a big ostentatious necklace or something like that and they called it peacocking like they they have this whole separate language about it right so um, they called that peacocking and when they were going to go out to like meet girls as like a group of guys they were going to go sarge I think that that's what it was called you know way too much about this. No, I'm telling I barely you, I, remember. I remember peacocking and I remember negging. Negging. See, that's the huge one because people like that's yeah. the one that's particularly dated. Like the concept of negging was basically that you're going to give backhanded compliments or like ignore some girl or s- some shit like that, basically, so that you lower her social standing and therefore she's more inclined to. A- am I getting this right? Like this is she's like therefore more inclined to be interested in you right or or to kind of i guess win you over because you have this negative feeling of her yeah right yeah so she so she feels the 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 onus is on her to like win you win your approval basically Uh uh-huh yeah i don't know it's all weird stuff (laughs) i uh wouldn't recommend anyone puts this into practice it's just absolutely ridiculous and i don't i don't think it is pragmatic at all but anyways so this was kind of where I first, to, to get to the point, this is where I first learned of the concept of social proof. Because what they say is like, you want to walk into a bar already with a, a female. Because if you do, then it already, it automatically signals to other, you know, girls around that you are, uh, you obviously have some value because you have somebody who's willing to like be around you or willing to date you or, you know, whatever. And, and obviously you must have some kind of charm or you must have some kind of mechanism that might not be seen from the outside, but like, therefore you have implicit value. And that side, I can say just that piece, um, from personal life experience is actually true. Now Uh I never used that to like, try and, uh, you know, get something out of it. But the the point was still there. Like, like you were saying is that when I'm actually like, that's that phenomenon that, that guys talk about all the time is that like, Oh, nobody, uh, I'm not being, you know, talked to by girls when I'm in or when I'm single, but then as soon as I get into a relationship, then girls are talking to me all the time and stuff like that. And that's because now you obviously have some implicit value that makes you dateable. Right. You know what I mean? So, so that was where I learned first learned about uh, social proof. But you sent me an infographic that was like actually way more professionally minded and not about that at all. <laughs> right. I mean, we touched on this a little bit last week uh, in the business sense, not so much in a uh, relationship sense. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the idea of validating your business, your brand, your product to be worthwhile to other people. Like, how do you do that? Mm hmm. And then my concern was, is my process, you know, valid enough to bring in like a Hollywood star right? to work in an environment that I'm establishing that's sort of outside, that's outside the norm. Yeah. That's outside the usual. Yeah. The huge. The huge. As Atish would say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and I thought that that was an interesting time for you to bring up that topic because it's like, well, e- you just and I mean, maybe maybe this isn't as big of a deal as it seems to me, but it's like you literally had an article about you and your work in a magazine that was published, which is not the first time for you because you get your photos published, you know, fairly regularly, regularly. But yeah, well, this is the first time for the film company. Right. And I think what it was is this idea that we're a film company, but we're not a film company. 
uh, okay. Can you run that by me? Well, um, like we don't like I uh, like we don't use the lingo. Like we don't use the same gear. We don't use okay. Yeah, you know the proper paperwork or whatever everyone usually does on a Hollywood set. Right. You're not you're not a Hollywood production, but you're also not trying to be a Hollywood production. We're not trying to be a Hollywood production, but we're also just trying to make movies. So it's mm-hmm. it's assumed that we are like a Hollywood production. So if someone okay. gave me a million dollars right now, mm-hmm. it would be assumed that I would run it like a Hollywood shoot. Right. Just because like of I the, would the hire. Right. I would hire, you know, X amount of crew. I would hire, you know, a DP, a gaffer, a camera operator, an AC, a second AC, and they all will have their hierarchies within each department. I would oh, get geez. an art director and a wardrobe person, mm-hmm. and I would get a script supervisor and there would be producers galore and there would be location managers. And then there would be like all these crazy jobs and things that yeah. are all really important and, you know, worth hiring someone to do. But the idea of it, the idea that uh, that's not what we do right now. I mean, we do something close enough, but it's not exactly that. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, so just a little side question before I actually dive deeper into that. Do you personally feel that there is a little bit of maybe redundancies that you're trying to avoid by, by not doing your films this way. I don't think it's the, the fact that it's redundancies. I think it's the, the uh, lack of uh, transformation, the lack of progress and progression okay. and the, la- and the lack of stepping away from history Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, you know the process that was established in the 1930s mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. you know we're, it's almost been a hundred years you know yeah we're still doing it the same way like yeah. the innovation is the word I'm looking for there's lack of innovation okay so basically you don't want to be limited by a format that you know has basically been instantiated and carried through for almost a century essentially right yeah okay a lot of a lot of times there are moments when I'm on a set and people will say we can't do that because we don't have you know, this piece XYZ. of equipment yeah. or this type of gear yeah. or something like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, something like that. And I'll be like, oh, well, let's just put this on a stick and see what happens. And then we get it, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's, uh, the, I, I feel, I find that, that, that cling to that process is mostly a hindrance mm-hmm. to me, mm-hmm. in my opinion. It, yeah. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Essentially that, that, uh, there, there's creativity in, scripts and maybe creativity in application of acting and stuff like that but essentially they're they're limiting it when it comes to your ability to think outside of the box that just because it hasn't been done in this way doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it this way right yeah okay okay got it so uh so you're essentially working towards so so i guess fill me in on how social proof is working towards that sort of goal because you're, you're doing things in a unique sort of way in a very, you know, non Hollywood sort of way, right. Is, is the way we, we could say that like you're doing this very um, unique, not big budget Hollywood sort of shoot. Even if you had a million dollars, $5 million, whatever, like you would, you would still be doing it in this unique process. So how does the need for social proof play into that? Like essentially you, you need to validate is it that you need to validate that or, or what, how exactly does that play? Uh, I think for me, it's the idea of getting people on board with my process mm-hmm. and being able to be open-minded on a set that I'm running versus trying to force it to be something that it's never going to be. Got it. Okay. And, and does this apply just out of tactical, you know, curiosity, does this apply to uh the the crew does it apply to the actors everybody like what are you kind of well i think the one i'm most concerned about i don't care about the crew because you can always rehire somebody else Mm -hmm. and that that doesn't matter i don't think i mean there are people you want to work with and i think it's easier to coax a crew member to to hop on the train please but I, I, the concern I'm having is uh, with talent, and mm-hmm. let's say I want to get a D-list actor or a C-list actor mm-hmm. in my ne- next project, how, what type of production are they going to be willing to hop on board with? 
Uh, yeah, I see. Because because you're you're really getting to the point where you're starting to scale, essentially. Right. I'm, we're, another scale session is about to happen. <laughs> Do I talk about scaling a lot? <laughs> no, we talked about it, I think, uh, maybe two years ago with the Murder Mystery Night. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, so you're you're kind of scaling up and you are essentially concerned that in the action of scaling up and as you are starting to kind of build bigger and bigger uh, productions, you're eventually getting into the room where you're, you know, going to be calling in some some higher tier talent. I'm like, I'm I'm soft i'm i'm toe tapping my way around this because it's like i don't i don't want to say the wrong thing sort of but um you're getting to just say it well you're getting to the point where you're going to be shifting from you know mostly the the local talent that we have currently you know and and maybe moving towards some some higher tier talent like that's that's basically the truth of it so you you don't want them to be scared away by the non-conventional productions that you do right yeah yeah i i get that and so so that's kind of where social proof kind of factors in and uh, you know what are your initial thoughts around that like are you talking about um reviews are you talking about you know follow like even following on social media is basically social proof now right like a lot of people i mean let's be honest everyone's sending everyone stuff about dm to collab like basically i get that on every picture just because i have a certain hashtag in there right right but it's right. not like yeah, i'm those... doing anything that that garners that it's just bots well maybe you are you just don't yeah. you just don't believe in yourself that's also probably true um but but even social media can be it like becomes a form of social proof because if you see someone who has and I mean, this is just how my mind works. And honestly, I need to, in Chris Scott terms, I need to break up with this. Like I, I need to break up with this. But uh, I just assume when I see somebody who, who has like 200 followers who's posting content about, you know, whatever they're doing. And I see someone with 10,000 followers who's posting stuff with like, uh, you know, a bunch of hashtags and whatever. It's like, I just assume that they're more legitimate than the other person. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So so there is a, a social proof uh, merit in or, or or at least currency uh, within social media as well. Right. But there was also a time where I, th- I think Instagram was trying to get rid of likes. Really? And trying to. Yeah. Trying to pop that bubble, which I think was interesting. Huh. I'm, I'm trying to think about how that would work from like a commercial standpoint. Because from a personal, all, all the influ- all influencers were pissed off because that's of how they make their money. I mean, we get twenty thousand likes per photos. Yeah, but it, it's like everyone. I think it'd be great for everyone's uh, mental health. Oh, for sure. For to sure. not have to chase after those likes, but but from a business point of view, it's like, e, yeah, this isn't going to help me at all. Or is it going to help you because you're uh, relying on a person's, you know. Uh, first reaction to it their first their gut reaction to an image you're posting or a trailer you're posting well that's kind of an interesting thought experiment i guess like if we were to pull away likes and maybe even what is it measured off of right now it's measured off of like in what was it called interactions or uh are we talking about social media yeah there's a word for it it's measured off of um Engagement. Engagement. Thank you. I was like, I was like, what is that called? Yeah. So it's the, it's the amount of people who like the amount of people who comment and then the amount of people who either subscribe on such platforms like YouTube and things like that, or the amount of people who, um, I guess that's called subscribe on Instagram as well. If you turn on notifications for their posts. Yeah. Which like, by the way, (laughs) I don't do that for anything because that sounds like the dumbest thing in the world. It's like, I don't want to get notified every day. Like basically companies or influencers or stuff like that. Like they have to post every single day. It's like, I don't want to be told every single day, but like, I don't want a notification every single day that something got posted. That seems annoying to me. But anyways, my little oh, uh, side note on that. If you're trying to build an audience or build up your social media, if you turn on notifications for pages where you believe your audience is living, and you find like they post and then immediately you uh, 
uh, comment on it mm-hmm. or like it, your your comment's going to stay on the top. So while they're you know throughout the day getting their million uh, likes or whatever, you know ten thousand comments, your your is going to be on the top, and it's most likely going to be the one clicked on. Uh, in- uh, clicked on, uh, liked what by the person that made the post because uh-huh. oh, someone already made a comment. I'm gonna like that real quick. Yeah. Right. So that's actually super sharp. I didn't I didn't think about that at all. I guess that's but man. That's what I would use a notification for. Other than that, I wouldn't use notifications. Yeah. That's that's super man, it's like just by virtue of me not posting on social media that much or me not, you know, doing this kind of stuff, it's like I lose out on actually so much of this like strategy that's involved there. You know what I mean? There's, there, like that's there actually can really be a sharp. lot of strategy. Yeah, there's, there can be a lot of strategy, but but also it's changing every month. It seems like it's really annoying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, man, that's that's really interesting. I didn't even think about things like that. But yeah, then then you're going to be more visible to people all over in a, in a very general sort of sense if you just okay. right. Wow, that's that's cool. Uh, but yeah, so do you think it becomes, it's, it's kind of like that old adage that it's like, um, the first million dollars is the hardest to make and everything after that is a little bit easier. Do you think that that, that's the case with, um, social proof in terms of both reviews or, um, you know, whether that's on Amazon or whether that's on, um, you know, other like, uh, streaming platforms or, or even Google reviews or something like that. Uh, and as well as social media, like, do you think that that's the case that it's like, there's a certain bubble that kind of is the, the, and this goes back to the comment about the, the, uh, the lower class and the upper class and that the divide is growing wider. Do you think that there's a kind of gap that you have to bridge in terms of followers or reviews or whatever that kind of puts you more in the, in the big time where it gets easier to allocate that sort of stuff? Or do you think it's flat or linear the whole way through? No, I do think once you get past, you know, a solid number, then things just snowball. Yeah. Because you are shown to, uh, well, especially on platforms with reviews Mm -hmm. and let's say Instagram or Twitter or whatever, if you reach a certain point, uh, the platform realizes, oh, people engage with your content. Mm -hmm. People like your content. People comment on your content. They right. like it. They do whatever. Let's push it out to more people. So then more people stay on our platform to watch your product, watch your page. So because it's all about keeping people on their mm-hmm. device. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason why Instagram is making their own reels instead of TikToks or right. their stories instead of Snapchat is so people stay on Instagram versus going to other Another apps. platform. Yeah. So I, I do think if you get, you know, a hundred comments on Amazon on your movie, your movie's gonna be pushed more because people are actually watching it and engaging with it mm-hmm. versus putting up a movie, no one's saying anything, it just gets lost in that deep dark ocean of Amazon bad movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's kind of the thing, and especially when it comes to Amazon. I feel like that's so tough now because, for instance, I was having this similar kind of thought, different application, um, and I think we were talking about it earlier as well, that we've just come to expect two-day shipping, right? Like that's mm-hmm. that's standard now. So every company now has to do two-day shipping, even if they're not on Amazon, because if you don't, then it, you're you're already losing out. People are thinking like, okay, can I get an equivalent product then, even if it's not the same one, but one that arrives faster or might be a little cheaper or something like that. So similarly, uh, you kind of have to match, like you need to have a certain amount of like positive reviews. And if you get a negative one, when the pool is really smaller, then that really does a whole lot more damage than, you, than if you already have, you know, let's say just a round number, a uh, hundred reviews. That were all, you know, great, and then you have five that are bad. It's the, the uh-huh. weighting there is so much different. It is definitely different. I don't know, man. I just don't know. So, uh, another kind of anecdote um, in this sort of vein, because I've got a friend who's a lot like you in the sense that he also tries to like push me into entrepreneurial ventures and stuff like that, like all the time, but way less vetted, like way, (laughs) way less. Like he's, he kind of casts like a really wide net. (laughs) 
he's he's not as targeted and specific as you are whereas you're like oh well your interests are this this and this so like you know you're already doing that why don't you turn that into a business or why why are you doubting yourself why do you think you need a another degree like that's more the chris scott sort of targeted approach whereas my buddy who owns his own business his own successful business by the way i should say but he just like casts a net he was just saying like oh man you should just get really good at doing personal training for girls and then you could be the uh, like all these girls are into these booty workout programs now. So you'll just be the guy who like does that and you'll make all these videos on YouTube and stuff like that. And I was like, what are you talking about, dude? I don't have any, like, he, he just kind of casts a wide net, but to his credit, to his credit and how this jives back to social proof, he, um, he owns a very successful uh, dog training business here in uh-huh. Phoenix. And he, uh, you know, to to his credit, he won best in the valley for dog training. And if you do a Google search of dog trainers, Phoenix, you whatever, there is a million of them. There is a ton of them. So the fact because a Phoenix is just very large. B uh, Phoenix and Scottsdale are uh, some of the most dog friendly cities in the United States. Like they routinely make top ten. Um, so there's, as such, you would imagine there's a lot of dog trainers here, right? But what sets my friend apart, I was just about to <laughs> drop his name. Um, <clears throat> what sets my friend apart is that he specifically, you know, makes it very easy or like builds it into the process that you end up writing a review and he encourages you to do it as you go through the process. So, you know, the first meeting, he's like, yeah, just, you know, for the evaluation, like, you know, throw me a review, let me know how I did on just the evaluation, all that kind of stuff. And and he frames it as like, you know, I want to be constantly improving my service. So just be honest, blah, blah, blah. But then as the process goes on, just, just the sheer statistics of it. And this is why it's kind of a sharp move is that because he, he does two different kinds of training. He either does a board and train where you leave your dog and then after two weeks, uh, or you can do the extended package for four weeks, uh, then you get your dog back. And then you um, see all the skills that the dog has built up. So more often than not, this will be a dog that, you know, doesn't have very much obedience or something like that and is left for two weeks, four weeks. So now when you come back, you're amazed that your dog can do all this kind of stuff because he really puts the work in. Like ultimately it does come back to the product that if you have a great Uh product, I mean, that's that's number one. Right. Social proof can only go so far. You ultimately do need to have a good product, a good product. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so people get amazed by what their dog can do and then they write a good review. But then what he also does on the other sides of the the packages, he also does, um, he also does, uh, uh, the kind of like lessons where you bring your dog every week, once a week for, you know, depending on how much stuff your dog needs to learn or something like that could be six weeks, could be 10 weeks, you know, whatever. And you do weekly lessons. And he specifically asks to he's he's like, hey, you know, leave me a review on the evaluation. So the very first visit, then halfway through, leave a review and then all the way through, leave a review. So you're just updating your review. So you're not you're not stacking it by just like multiple deep because that would be a little weird. (laughs) But um, yeah, you're updating your review as you go. So he's actually using these reviews as a journey through the client's eyes, basically, as they're going. And so he just racked up, you know, five star review, five star, five star, five star, five star. And uh, so as a result, then the Phoenix, you know, whatever, I, I forget what what awards or whatever, but they gave him best in the valley because he was just getting these massive five star reviews from people who would be like at first they'd be like, oh, yeah, the evaluation was a little weird. The pricing is it's expensive, you know, whatever. So they're they're maybe not giving it a five star, but then they update by halfway or or by full conclusion, because he has such a good product and because he's so consistent, he's able to get the dogs to really be dialed in. I mean, like myself, for instance, Grizzly's a handful. He's a he's a big boy. He's a and he's kind of a crazy dog. You know what I mean? He uh, he's a German Shepherd. They they have a ton of energy if you don't exercise them constantly. And, you know, he had to learn a lot. But just the product is amazing because now Grizzly listens to everything I say, even when someone's coming into the house or even, you know, whatever, like he he actively. So therefore, these like he is getting that social proof by being like, well, you know, now on my website, I can list, you know, 2000 
19 or 2020 or I forget which year it was now, but, uh, you know, I was best in the Valley. I'm, I'm, I was given an award for being the best dog trainer. Also, you know, cause he even listed on the website, he's like, Hey, still not sure that, you know, uh, the, the, this dog training business is for you. Check out these reviews and he links it on his website. Boom there. You don't have to go Google searching for it or you don't have to whatever. He links you to all the yeah. reviews. So he builds up that reputation of being just strong product, strong customer service, and you know you get these quality results. And I think that really helps in terms of people making those decisions in terms of buying. That's another one that I think I need to work on achieving is it some sort of award. Mm, mm-hmm. I feel like awards are another good way to validate your, I guess, my, in my case, a film, a movie. Yeah. So just some, somehow figuring out a way to get some sort of award, I think would. Yeah. I, I mean, and that's so tricky for your specific industry, right? Because it's like they do awards all the time. Like, for instance, the restaurant I used to work for that I didn't really think was good food. You know what I mean? I, I think you uh-huh. are, you agree that it, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Overrated. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Chris, <laughs> Chris used to be so sarcastic when I'd be getting off work from that particular place. (laughs) But, um, but, but yeah, it's like, but they get, they, because there's, you know, so many different awards that people like from Tucson weekly or something like that. Right. And it's so categorized like, Oh, where do you get the best ice cream in Tucson? You know what I mean? Where do you get the best? And so it's so targeted that, you know, the restaurant that I used to work for, it was basically a shoe in to win something. You know right. what I mean? Like just because of how specific the awards, but that's really more difficult to do in a local film scene. Like I don't like, I don't know what awards there are actually for that. Well, that's the, the 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 super tough part about it is that no one looks internally to the film scene for allocates. They mm-hmm. look for outside films to be brought to Tucson to oh. award those versus awarding from within, and it's uh, super frustrating. Is that part of this kind of, um, what do I mean to say? Is that part of this, like, uh, I don't, I don't want to use the phrase like Hollywood process or whatever, but that's basically what I mean. It's like, that's, and that's ultimately part of this process that you just don't adhere to essentially that, that, you know, oh, we're going to, we're considering these films that do Hollywood budget you know, stuff and bring in this whole process and hire on all these people and do this, the same kind of stuff, but, and therefore they get awarded, but they're, it's, it's from outside. It's not, it's not something that was really homegrown or built up. Right. There's not a lot of homegrownness to, I think the film industry, I think there is here and there, but Mm -hmm. for the most part, I mean, if you look for talent in any city, in any state in this country, if you find a really good actor, let's say, Mm -hmm. Uh, they're not if they get that bug if they get the itch they're not going to stay in town yeah they're going to move to la or to new york to because there's more acting gigs available if there's people that are really good at camera work they're not going to stay in town they're Mm going to move to california Mm -hmm. or new york to you know because there's more work often because that's where all the work is and so it turns like the big cities turn into the cesspools of best of the best across the country Mm mm-hmm and of course, people want the best of the best to be the right. winners of their because it makes their film festivals look good. It makes their competitions look good that they're picking actually really good things. Right. And even though the process of making a movie in California is ridiculous and costs a ton of money, it's still doable. But it's, you know, the best of the best doing things on the yeah. weekend. So it's yeah. going to look way better than, you know, an amateur and missoula montana yeah yeah i see what you're, and and honestly that's a really tough industry for or like you're specifically in a tough industry for that because it's like you can only really get reviews once you've made the movie and the, that could take a year or, or right. you know at least six months or something like that whereas you know my buddy he he does you know 10 dog training clients a week Maybe more, right. you know, because he's, he's doing a bunch of board and train and he's doing a bunch of lessons throughout the week. So by, you know, a rotating, you know, by three weeks, he has two new reviews and then another two weeks. Now he has three more reviews or something like that. You know what I mean? Like he kind of has this it's it's a shorter cycle, one could call it in between a product because the, the product that he's selling is your obedient and trained dog. 
depending on which packages he's selling or stuff like that, it's like he has a shorter, a much shorter cycle than you do in order of collecting reviews because you have to put out, you have to write, um, shoot, produce, edit, and then put out a final product, Eddie Mummy, or, uh, uh, you know, the, the murder mystery night or whatever. And, and it's like, that's a much, much, much longer cycle in terms of getting reviews. So it's hard to get that, that, uh, acc- what am I trying to say? Not acclamation. Accolades? No. Well, yeah, accolades. Yeah, it's like harder to get those accolades or really that build up with that because it's like you're not rolling these things back to back to back and in a shorter time span. Right. Yeah. That's it, what you just made me think of. Actually, was um, because we always bring things back to Entourage. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly uh, like Entourage. Remember, yeah, it's exactly like Entourage. Remember, uh, I think this is like season two or season three. Earlier on, uh, Vince doesn't want to do Aquaman. He's he's totally he's, he looks at the costume. He's kind of like, ah, I don't want to do Aquaman. I want to do something else. And then as soon as he hears James Cameron's in, like on board, now he's in it again. Now he really wants it, even though they've moved on to somebody else. Now he wants the part, right? Yeah. So it's like that's kind of the thing that you you have to cultivate and the film industry seems really really difficult like you said because it's like it comes with this hollywoodization of it it's like once you have a name that you've done you know for instance i'm victim to it myself in a sense well not victim is a strong word but i i engage on that myself because it's like i just assume that i like fincher movies right i just assume that i do and so Who's to say that I'm not inclined, I'm more inclined to think that a Fincher movie is great walking in, whereas I'm more inclined to think that Christopher Nolan movies are going to be a 50-50 split on whether they're good or they're bad. You know what I mean? True. Yeah, well, Fincher movies usually are pretty good. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I certainly think so, at least. Plus, my like one of my favorite movies of all time is Zodiac, so that it just is what it is. It is what it is. Speaking of which, did right. we, uh, not not to derail this too much, but did we, uh, I, I finally saw Tenet, and I have many, 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 many things to say, but anyways, please continue. Uh, I think we talked about it a little bit. We probably should talk about it more. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, so there's usually that, that aspect of it, of winning an award or an accolade, mm-hmm. or having some sort of gimmick to it, mm-hmm. to really get some clout in, the, I guess, the film industry. You know, uh, back in the day when Robert Rodriguez made El Mariachi for seven thousand mm-hmm. dollars, you know that that was unthinkable back in the early nineties. Yeah, and so it turned into oh, having a gimmick turned into the new way to get some sort of social validation. Mm. Now, is that all the time a bad thing? I guess is having what I'm a gimmick. Yeah, because. Maybe, maybe I don't know if this would be considered a gimmick, but are you familiar with this guy, Andrew Schultz? Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's that comedian yeah. with the talk show. Yes. Okay. That so, is um, mostly uh, non-PC. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that guy. Uh, that guy. Exactly. So Andrew Schultz is an interesting case study when it comes to social proof gimmicks and kind of mechanics around the norm. I don't really watch his stuff, to be honest. Um Although I have heard him on, you know, interviews with like Rogan and stuff like that. And I like him in general or like I think he's nice enough and interesting enough. He's a little bit too much um, like he's older than I am, I'm pretty sure. But he's too built up into the whole like younger generation kind of stuff like um, uh, into really kind of garbage hip hop and sneakers. And do do you see what I'm saying? Like, can you kind of gain a picture of who I'm trying to describe? Like. He'll he'll use phrases like lit and things like that. Like it's just not my my type of vein that I yeah. That he's I can just do. Uh, he's one of those guys that is uh, always hangs around the young kids. Yeah, yeah, like totally. A little too long, exactly. And I think he's a household name for people who are just a little bit younger than me, or or maybe and maybe I'm totally wrong. I might be completely missing the thing. Here. He's my age. No way. Yeah, he's my age. Yeah. All his st- Does that blow you away because of how old I am? No, 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 no. Not because of how old you are, but like I just kind of assumed he was in my age group or something like that. Just 
And, and I'm totally in doing so. I'm being a total asshole. I'm judging a book by its cover. But in this case, the cover is also just like how he... Because I think he articulates himself very well, but he also couches it in this whole like millennial speak type of thing. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Which like that could never... Try as I might, that could never be my brand, right? Because it sounds so fake when I say things like, bro, uh, you know, like it, it just sounds so fake because I don't speak that way. Anyways, point being, what I do like about Andrew Schultz is that, you know, comedians, they were always doing spots. They're always doing, you know, tours, all that kind of stuff. And COVID basically shut that entirely down. And so then all people could rely on was getting specials on Netflix or on HBO or wherever comedy specials are. In addition, so you said you you noted that, you know, he's not exactly PC. And in 2020 or maybe 2019, I forget, there was this kind of push for more of a, uh, like a lot of the HBO specials coming out at the time were uh, more woke, I guess you could say. Like that's the the general vein, and I have lots of examples, but I'm not trying to uh, I'm not trying to polarize our. We'll <laughs> save that discussion for another day. Yeah, we'll save that discussion for another day. That's not that's not practical to have here. But basically, uh, that was kind of the way to get specials during that time. And instead, Andrew Schultz just completely takes to YouTube. Completely takes to YouTube, and then he's doing stuff like. Hey, I haven't done comedy in in this many months because of the shutdown. Like, watch me do it in front of like a park full of strangers because we can't go inside. So let me do it outside. Uh And he's like, so it's kind of showing this vulnerable sort of side. But basically, he's doing all the stuff that you theoretically wouldn't want to do. You don't want to show that like, hey, I'm rusty and I'm bombing in front of crowds or doing whatever. And he's just chopping them up into small bits so that they're easily consumable. And now we're saying that's obvious and that a bunch of a bunch of people are doing that. But this was early or this was like late 2019, early 2020. So he Uh was really just the first to it. So it kind of in that sort of sense makes me wonder, like, how could we take the virtues of what Elephant Scout is doing by being non-standard, essentially, or not following the process? But how do we turn that into uh, its own variety of social proof? Right. Have you watched the um, Comedy Store documentary on Showtime yet? I haven't, but I feel like I should. You should check it out. There's a, Towards the end, it gets a little wonky, but it's very pro Joe Rogan at the end, which is fine. <laughs> but but it talks about how, you know, to make it in comedy, you used to hop on the Carson show or on mm-hmm. Letterman or on mm-hmm. Conan or something, like be on a talk show. Yeah. And then that kind of stopped. And mm-hmm. then they complained about uh, PC culture a lot. <laughs> and then... Uh, Everybody's on a podcast now. So there was yes. definitely a pivot happened. So yes. I I don't know how to do that for... Well, I guess we're trying to do the same thing with this scripted podcast. Exactly. And trying to see if that can you know, show that we can tell a story. I, I mean, I, I would even challenge your thinking there that I think that that's what you've been doing on a lot of different stuff. Like, for instance, the Murder Mystery Night or whatever. It's like you're looking for... You're... This entire time, and and you know, I haven't obviously read the article in was it Tucson Lifestyle? Yeah, yeah. So I haven't read the article in Tucson Lifestyle, so I don't know if it points to this or not. But basically, it's like a lot of what you're doing is kind of this outside of the box thinking. So it's honestly what what you need is just a way to get that outside of the box thinking less reliant on a six to twelve month cycle. You know what I mean? Because it's it's too long in between movies and stuff like that. Right. And and uh, but you're doing this stuff regularly, you know, with with the idea of the murder mystery night. But then, of course, that takes a long time to produce. It, it does because there was there was two shorts, you know, which take a long time. And then there was uh, and then there was like a written hour, like an acting component, uh, live right. acting component. I mean, right. Nobody in Tucson is doing the things you are doing. That's that's just the way it is. Like nobody, like I said, how many how many you know events have you gone to for friends or something like that where they're doing a a thing at the loft or they're doing something at the screening room, right? Right. And we sit down, we watch the film, we do a Q and A, we call it a night. Like that's that's the format. I've been to uh, I think three to four of those. Essentially, uh, yeah, they're all the same. Yeah. So I it, I remember a while ago having this thought, reading a, a couple, 
biographies or hearing people's stories of how they made it. I guess I've been listening to podcasts about other filmmakers and their first time movies and how they got made. And a lot of them sound the same, but the ones that were interesting were intriguing to me were the ones that were different. They, uh, they weren't following someone else's footsteps. They weren't constantly referencing mm-hmm. other people's journeys and trying to mimic those journeys. Right. The idea of moving to LA, getting a job as a PA, working your way up just seems like yeah. it doesn't work for everybody. Right. And the, and the stories that do work are the ones that are for the people that do things that are outside the, the box. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's why I'm constantly trying to do something different. Yeah, and so this is where really the the ideas merge together, right? Doing something outside of the box is, uh, like, in general, a good idea, or at least can be a very captivating idea. But now you need to integrate the concept of social proof. And, you know, I'm saying this as if it's so fucking easy or something like that when I don't have that at all. So, you know, this is one of those, like, do as I say, not as I do (laughs) moments. But... But essentially, you know, it's it's how do we take the uh, Chris Scott, you know, uh, aversion to a formula, basically, because because you you try to not do stuff with the with the Hollywood or with the L.A. formula or, you know, it's like, how do we take your kind of unique recipe and validate that with social proof and drive, you know, some more of that and that's kind of going to be the challenging thing. It's uh, it ultimately comes down to, you know, more content put out, but not the kind of content. Like, I don't know. I, I think the, your social media strategy really, really started pushing on stuff, but there's only so much that people can react to or relate to when it's, you know, memes or something like that. So it then kind of begs the question. It's like, well, how do we put out something routinely and maybe marketing this podcast better? Or in my estimation, I think maybe uh, something that because ultimately, you know, there are two types of podcasts. There's entertain. Well, there's probably more. (laughs) I just don't know. (laughs) But in my perspective, there's two types of podcasts. There's entertainment podcasts and educational podcasts. Uh And we have traditionally kind of we we blur the lines a little bit, but we stay kind of more in the educational podcast format. We're talking about social proof right now, and we're kind of thinking out loud on what does social proof mean to each of our workflows and and what is that what should that how do people apply these things tactically? Now, pivot that to what you're trying to do as a filmmaker. Ultimately, you're entertaining, right? That's you know, and and perhaps capturing messages and and you know specifically focusing on diversity and inclusion and all this kind of stuff but but you're ultimately entertaining so that kind of is the the thing and specifically in your modality of being a filmmaker or at least someone experienced in story writing and and you know that kind of stuff that's why I'm kind of interested in the the idea of the fast and the furious podcast because it's like that's something that could be content additional to you know you've got a multitude of different streams of stuff in term long term and short term projects but that would be something that's an entertainment podcast where it allows you to stretch and talk about you know what you think makes a good film what you think makes a bad film and uh, that that sort of thing which could give some form of social validation. Right. In a sense. I was thinking about doing something similar to that, uh, revising, uh, not revising, revitalizing uh, creative eye strategize, synergize. Interesting. Where I can bring my point of view to things uh, of that nature, as well as talk about more film business stuff. Yeah. And my approach to it. And I, yeah. that's, that's something I've been thinking about. I, you know, I don't think that's a bad idea. I think. Um, you know, in in general, at least for myself personally, it's like the more we do these things, and by these things I mean podcasts. But the more we do these things, it's like the more I actually learn about not only how to do these things or how this works, but also I'm I'm ending up learning more about myself and where my focus and attention sort of is. And uh, uh, there's no reason to not go back and retool something or re rework something that you think maybe had good bones, but wasn't applied in the correct way. Or like you didn't have the framework or the knowledge that you have now in terms of applying it. I, I would encourage that idea. Uh huh. So, uh, that's, you know, the, the, the take on social proof essentially to, to kind of net some is that it, I, 
at, at the end of wait, the wait, day. Wait, 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 wait. Are you saying that I need to do my own little, uh, I need to present my case? I mean, I think you. <laughs> is this like me going to court and saying this is why I'm not guilty? Well, I'm. Or I, I'm cool. Uh, I, not so much the emphasis on that, but I think that in order to like in, in sales, we have a, uh, uh, there's a, there's a phrase that basically says that, you know, the, the, um, quickest way to solve a pipeline problem, meaning, you know, in leads and all that kind of stuff, people you could sell to the fiber, the, what fiber. Fiverr, yeah. Uh, the the quickest or uh, the the solution to uh, a pipeline problem is activity, always. So picking up the phone and dialing, um, getting on the internet, or like writing LinkedIn messages, blah blah blah, like all that kind of stuff. Prospecting activities, like so. The way to solve um, a pipeline problem is always through activity. So similarly, if you're having a pipeline problem. It, you know, even in your industry, which I'm not even pretending to know anything about because I don't. I don't know what it takes to be a filmmaker. I don't know what it takes to be an actor. I don't know anything about anything. But you have a pipeline problem, essentially. You know what yeah. I mean? You you have you have quality content and really good stuff, but it's like now we need to kind of drum up that social proof. We need to get those people writing the reviews. We need to get those people following. We need to get those people on a YouTube channel or something. So what's the way to solve that? An activity. Get on the phone. Yeah. Some sort get, of activity. Get on the phone. So in your sense, it's not, you know, because I think what you do really, really well, and again, like totally <laughs> take everything I'm saying with a huge grain of salt because like the fuck do I know, right? But it's you do all these really well thought out and well kind of programmed and put together things, which is great because those are the things that will keep people, right? Like, like. You know what keeps uh, everyone on Christopher Nolan's uh, side is uh, fucking Batman. You know, and he puts yeah. out he puts out these huge pictures that are just epic and stuff like that. Or, or even you know now with Tenet, you know it's like watching the trailer. I was fucking intrigued. I was intrigued. I was like, wait, it's a Christopher Nolan movie, and people are fighting backwards and shit like that. You know, yeah. like. But that's because he already has the social proof. So to go back to Andrew Schultz, it's like the way that he does it is he did it with like smaller bite size, you know, ability. to. So he's able to turn around and film another one and another one and another one. And he just does. So I think it's less about making. I mean, I, I see what you mean by making your case and, and, you know, whatever. But it's like it is kind of that it's you want to be. What do I, how do I mean to phrase this? It's like you need to give people the opportunity to. I need to ask them to write the reviews. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And then and be happy with their dog training. Yes, exactly. Because, uh, you know, my, my buddy has so many clients in coming in all the time. He's putting his product on display multiple, multiple, multiple times. And of course, it's harder to do, you know, just jumping off. But, you know, you're in this already established place like people around town know who you are and people like there are people who go and see your films there are people who listen to your podcast you know but those there's too much uh ban or there's too much time in between your you know major releases that would really get people onto your side or get people to like you or get people to engage with you you there needs to be a shorter cycle thing but something that's more personal. It's like memes are one thing, and that's and that's I think great for getting like short term attention and stuff like that. But what are the Chris Scott things that specifically? And I think you do them from time to time, and it's great. But it's like it's just activity. That's that's the only part. It's like it's just activity because I see these YouTube clips or these videos that you shoot that you put on Instagram or they're on YouTube, and it's like yeah, this is awesome. That like more of that, more of that. Oh, okay, yeah. So and again, like you know. Uh, it's uh, do as I say, not as I do, because it's like I'm realizing as I'm listening to that, it's like, yeah, that's exactly what I should be doing. <laughs> like, that's that's 100 percent the thing that I need to be doing as well. I need more. I You solve this with an activity problem. So. Right. So. All right. I hear what you're saying. So I feel like the the my idea of what social proof was is I was trying to force outside 
I was me waiting for it to happen. I need to go out and actively seek it. Well, I need I, to present opportunities for it to be obtained by. Right. I, I, I don't think it's fair to say that you are just like sitting on your hands waiting for it because it's like that's absolutely not true. Like you work really hard on really great productions, which is awesome. But it's like we need to get people in on the ground floor of those productions. We need to have people join you along the process of writing a scripted podcast. Like, for instance, OK. There's um, this guy who also runs a very non-PC podcast. In fact, extremely non-PC. But he's a really great business guy. He is in one of these podcasts that's that's labeled as the most offensive podcast on earth and stuff like that. But at the same time, he's actually a really shrewd and smart businessman because he now runs a podcast network. This is the guy who I started to get the ideas from that I was like, oh, wow, like this, there's some legs to this idea. He just runs a podcast network and that's his job. And uh-huh. he just puts out content. And he started doing something. He's not a fighter at all, but he got interested in mixed martial arts. He has been for a while. And he uh, took a fight with another podcaster. So then he's like training up for a fight. And so he does weekly videos of him. Like it's his fight vlog, you know, and, and shit like that. And it's, you just need to present more opportunities for people to like you and like what you're doing. You know what I mean? I think that's all there is to it because you have these, like, uh, you know, I, again, I'm not saying you're sitting on your hands and like waiting for things to happen. You do have these really great big productions that uh, I think would garner you a lot of fans, but we need to get the people in the room. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. The, the way you do that is just with, you know, more, more activity, more we activity. To, we need to get more pipeline in sales, more speed. pipeline, more fiber, not fiber, fiber. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> I didn't understand what you were saying at all for a second there. <laughs> I was like, he's gone fucking crazy. Uh, all right. So, Chris, anything to plug? What you got? Besides uh, uh, your own homemade uh, podcast studio booths. My homemade uh, podcast studio booths tomorrow, February 23rd. Uh, it's the first episode of Tucson Heat, the scripted podcast I've been talking about all this time. Hell we yeah. We're premiering the first episode wherever podcasts are available. Just type in Tucson Heat. Tucson heat. Awesome. Yeah, I'll be I'll be on the lookout. So that's uh, that for it'll be Sunday. The, oh, wait, tomorrow would be Tuesday. Tomorrow's Tuesday because right. it's Monday, right? It's my <laughs> you're still on Hawaii time or follow. Um, yeah, follow Elephant Scout everywhere. And that's where you get the info, the links. Perfect. And you can follow me on social media at Atish Mazish. Um, I've got lots of ideas, but very little activity. So now it's it's time to, you know, put my money where my mouth is or even put my effort where my mouth is, so to speak, and start solving my problems with an activity solution. So uh, get things rolling there, you know, and uh, if you do get on my social media, shoot me a message and tell me to stop being such a lazy piece of shit. And then, uh, you know, the motivation from people who listen will will definitely get me there. After that, we will see you next time on Ramen Profitable.